Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. It is great to be back after a few days off. Did I miss anything? Anything going on while away? My goodness. Busy, busy show coming up today. And we are going to continue talking about the flooding we are seeing in many parts of BC, the current evacuation orders and the alerts. Take a quick listen to this. This is Sam Spada. He was speaking with Global News earlier today in the Whatcom Road area. He and his family were rescued by boat. Uh, There was a small boat that neighbors brought out on the roadway. We did spend the night uh, in the parking lot at the Petro Canada. Uh, it was a little bit tough with the, the two girls. They were really scared being away from home, having to sit in the car, uh, not able to get anywhere. It's uh, not something we've been through before. Uh, we got the evacuation order uh, pretty late and the water already started coming down uh, just on by road. It was pretty deep already. We spent a lot of time on the bridge coming over. No, we couldn't get through it all. Let's bring back Jonathan Gormick, Information Officer with Canada Task Force One. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. No problem. Uh, I know you were speaking with Mike Smith as well. Any updates as far as the searches that are continuing and what's happening with that? We have progressed a bit this morning. The team got out to where the slide impacted uh, the south section of the debris flow where it impacted the highway. Um, A quick survey with the drone uh, gives a bit of confidence that the land above was stable for the foreseeable future, at least until there's any changes or we we see some more precipitation. Um, And a flyover of where the highway is uh, gives a sense that there were not any vehicles trapped right on the highway under the debris. Um, So that allowed some uh, contractors from the Ministry of Transport and infrastructure to move in and start clearing that and at least get a path to access the vehicles, uh, the ones that were trapped last night where we evacuated the people. Now, we also did a flyover of the area that's south of the highway, uh, between the highway and the river. Um, That's going to be a little bit more challenging. Um, There's some vehicles that we can see submerged, but uh, so far all the ones that uh, we can see from the air are ones that we know uh, Agassiz Fire was able to rescue people from on Sunday night. So now the determination is um, whether there are vehicles submerged that we can't see. So uh, we're looking for some visual cues, even things like oil slicks. But uh, at this point, because of, they've been submerged and submerged for the better part of 36 to 48 hours, this will be a recovery operation. And it's just figuring out how to proceed safely because the, the water in some parts is you know, well over 45 meters deep. And I know you mentioned this earlier, they using uh, canine teams and that to kind of guide searchers to where there might still be people or there might be people trapped. Is that possible or is the, the area that you just described too remote or too cut off? Um, that would have been for where the debris was more solidified on the highway. Uh, the area that uh, of concern or where there might be uh, potential recoveries now is, is really swampy and basically underwater. Um, I don't know how we'll proceed from here. I mean, if it does uh, become a recovery operation, the only good thing about that is we have time on our side to proceed carefully and slowly. But uh, what that'll look like, I'm not totally sure. Um, The other thing that we have working to our advantage now is a little bit of clarity with the information. We're we're able to um, cross-reference our lists of people that were evacuated yesterday, names, license plates, with the lists that uh, RCMP have developed from the different uh, slides throughout the area. So, uh, you know, information was a bit murky yesterday, trying to determine who was trapped on what section of the highway. Was it in the zone that we were working on or possibly the one further east or even a highway that wasn't number seven? So that's starting to become a little bit more clear and might help us um, 
more accurately determine if there is a vehicle or multiple vehicles submerged. Um, you know, if there's, if there's, we can confirm that there's nothing in there, there there'll be no reason to send uh, rescuers in. But if there's any doubt at some point, uh, we'll have to figure out how to move in and perform those recoveries. Right. And when you say, too, that heading into that window, that 36 to 46 hour window, do you know if there have been any reports of people missing or unaccounted for? No, there's not. There's not reports, which is why we're uh, taking a little bit slower here. But again, of course, uh, after this amount of time, it would be a recovery at this point. So there's not really a, a rush. I mean, uh, the other thing, we would like to move in and get some work done in case the weather were to change again, because uh, the slope that's uh, near the start zone of where the slide was is still a little bit unstable. So some heavy precipitation could change that and uh, make the situation fairly dangerous for us. But we're sort of taking it a piece at a time. We're just, in fact, reviewing uh, more closely the drone footage of that area between the highway and the river right now, trying to formulate a plan and cross-referencing with what uh, Agassiz Fire was able to perform on Sunday night and the lists that RCMP have developed. And how are you doing as far as crews and having enough crew members? I mean, it's got to be a fatigue. It's got to be a tiring operation. I know crews are trained to do this, but it's still got to be extremely taxing and tiring. Yeah, it was. It's. I mean, we the team was deployed on Sunday at 10 p.m. Um, worked through the majority of the night, got a little bit of sleep that night. It was a full day yesterday, and not just a, a long day, but a long day working in the elements. It was extremely windy, rainy, cold. Uh, some hard physical labor and a long day. Thankfully, the team got a good rest last night. A few of our members uh, were stood down and returned back to Vancouver, and we had replacement crews on standby uh, waiting to come up, but. Because there is less uh, manual searching to do than we first anticipated, because we were able to clear that section of the highway so quickly, where it would have taken crews just uh, digging through by hand if there had been any indication of vehicles, that means we don't need quite as many staff on site right now. Uh, So we're able to uh, operate with who we have, and uh, I think we'll make a determination if any of this team are remaining up here tonight or for how long they'll stay up here. And at this point, are there still people? I know that there are people obviously cut off because of the highways that have been damaged and are now impassable. But are there still people that are stranded in specific areas where they can't get out that need to be rescued? No, fortunately, that was one of the good outcomes of yesterday was the operational zone that we were working in. We got everyone evacuated uh, by just before uh, 1700 hours. The last flight landed and dropped people off. Um, Obviously, their vehicles are still in that area. And um, I guess we'll work with Ministry of Transport and Infrastructure to see when we might be able to get those out. The people that were stranded more east than that, uh, which is what made some of the information really uh, confusing yesterday, they they had to wait a little bit longer. And I know there was some frustration expressed on social media because they they saw that helicopters were coming in, but they never saw the helicopters arrive. Um, Their patience was rewarded by the fact that uh, Ministry of Transport was able to clear the road to the east and they were able to drive back to Hope. So a little bit longer wait, but they were able to leave with their vehicles. All right. And Jonathan, one other question, and I don't know if you can answer this at this point, because I know things are still, as you said, uh, fluid, things are still moving. Uh, Do you get the sense with the amount of damage that we're hearing from the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, specifically talking about the Coquihalla, it could be weeks, it could be months, given the amount of damage. Do you get the sense there will be ways to set up detours, there will be ways so that people who are stuck on either side and live on the other side will be able to get there? Um, uh, yes, although I don't think the solution is going to come anytime soon. Um, you know, the uh, damage to the Coquihalla, I would uh, call catastrophic and uh, not repairable within months. Um, the alternate routes, you know, having seen what I've seen of Highway 7, you know, I 
think if it's determined by geotechnical engineers that people can come in and at least get their vehicles, that might be a possibility. But uh, the likelihood of the highway opening to traffic, um, I'm not a geotechnical engineer, but I've seen the slope above, and uh, they would have to be very sure that uh, the debris above where the slide happened, where the start zone was, was more secure than it appears now, I think, before they opened it to regular traffic. I'm not sure what other alternate routes there are through the region. Uh, Highway 1's been impacted as well. Yeah, it's going to be a tough few months for transport between um, this southwestern corner of the province and anywhere else. All right. Uh, Jonathan Gormick, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you coming on the show today. No problem. Thank you very much. Uh, when it comes to these emergencies, I just hope they learn from this and uh, do a little bit better preparation, getting people out uh, ahead of time, getting the word out. Again, that was one of the residents that Global News spoke to earlier today. They spent a couple nights in their vehicle, the whole family, and were rescued with a boat on what was a roadway a short time ago, but getting to dry land. So what can we learn from this type of catastrophic event? How can we recover from this and maybe look to the future about being prepared? Does it change how we become better prepared. Steve Armstrong is joining us now, Mount Royal University instructor, also a former Red Cross director and recovery leader. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my great pleasure, Jill. Thank you. What are your thoughts looking at some of the the footage, the aerial footage and seeing the reports and seeing the damage of what's happening in BC right now? Well, the images are so dramatic and the stories of rescues and people trapped and being rescued by, you know, the Air Force and other people are is overwhelming right now. But as a somebody who's been involved with this business for a long time, I think forward and I just think about the work that people have to do as individuals and communities and municipalities just to be able to hit the reset to start recovery it would be it's overwhelming for people i think when they look at what they've lost and what they're facing and, and right now not even knowing if they've lost everything and so where do you even begin or when you talk about that and the work that now needs to be done where do you start well the first thing i would suggest is uh, although in canada for the most part there's very little uh insurance for overland flooding like that these people are facing in BC and across the Delta and up through the interior. Um, So they are really going to have to rely on their own resources and they're going to have to rely on government stepping up to help because, as I said, most people do not carry flood insurance, which would be different than the summer's fires because your fire insurance doesn't care whether the fire was caused by a forest fire or a match, right? So they'll be facing financial hardships that could take decades for some people to recover from, quite frankly. And that's uh, looking at it as well from the personal that the lo- the personal loss, whether it's uh, a housing, whether it's it's a vehicle, uh, what's been lost that way. But we were talking with one of the res- first responders on the show, uh, and they're saying that the Coquihalla Highway, a major highway in this province, that it, we're not talking about a quick fix. That it's going to be weeks, it's going to be months before that highway is fixed. And looking at the other places as well, where the roads are closed making sure the slopes are stable, stable enough to open those roads again. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, in retrospect, people, and I assume people at Emergency Preparedness BC and some of the other thinkers on this anticipated some damage, because normally after a big forest fire, you do get flooding and landslides, but not necessarily to this degree. 
the problem is that people's lives move on so fast, right? And and they don't think about the next thing, which was this this traumatic event. Um, and I'm not I'm not blaming anybody. It's just human nature, right? That you just want to get past and move on. So I, I would say that, you know, just imagine just the infrastructure required to get back in place so people, to even to get into their homes and start cleaning up uh, the water sewer plants, uh, the uh, cell phones, the telephone cables, and, and the fact that basically lower mainland and, and is completely isolated by road from the rest of Canada right now, um, short of coming up through the states, how are you going to get supplies and to help these people it's going to be a very gigantic effort and and i know there will be a lot of time and to do this coming up in the days and weeks ahead mm-hmm. but there are questions being asked at this point because we did see uh, in our their neighbors in alberta there were concerns and people were told maybe don't head out on the mountain passes there is a huge storm coming uh, this is the time to not go on that trip uh, should we have been better prepared in that we knew this wasn't just some rain on the way we knew this was a storm that was packed a huge amount of water. Should there have been more attention, do you think, paid to that? And perhaps warning people, don't go on these mountain passes, stay close to home, prepare for this. Well, I think there's an issue around social media, not social media as a, as a, as a thing, but you know, and there was a day when we only had a few radio stations and a few television stations. So getting the message out to people is a lot simpler. Like uh, I listen to podcasts most times, so I, I could easily miss the news. So I think we need, as individuals in this world today, considering climate change and the consequences of of just what's happening right now, is we have to take more re- personal responsibility to be able to be aware of our surroundings and situation. You know, I heard of a guy caught between radium and and Banff, and he just had a pair of light shoes and a light spring jacket and no blankets, no candles, no nothing, driving through the mountain passes in November which is quite brutally honest for me. I think that's a bit bit uh, careless. Uh, you know, we live in a dangerous place and, and through the mountains, and we, as individuals, we need to be prepared. And you can't expect an RCMP officer or an ambulance on every street corner to bail you out if you get in trouble. So we, we as human beings, need to be better prepared. And then our municipalities, I think, for the most part, you know, they're very aware of what's going on in the world. But there's been a lot of research, particularly out of the United States, where if a if a municipality or a mayor or a governor or a premier invests too much in preparedness, they lose the next election because people think it's a waste of money. Mm-hmm. You make an interesting point uh, about traveling, even if yeah. there isn't a weather system like this in the forecast. Uh, you're right. The, the, the idea your car could break down, you could oh, go sure. off the highway, any number of things could happen where you yeah. you need more than a pair of shorts and a pair of sneakers. Oh, absolutely. And and even in the best of times, there's lots of places there's dead zones with uh, for cell towers. So we just have to. Like I, I certainly don't want to be blaming anybody. That's not my intent. But I think we all have to take our role of emergency preparedness very seriously. And the individual, the family and individuals have a, have a great deal of responsibility to tend to themselves until emergency services and disaster services, the professionals, can get there to help.
And do you think that has changed as far as how we do that? And I know people are, are looking at this and seeing what's happening and people that have been around for a while will say, well, yes, but there was flooding back in this day and we had flooding, uh, you know, 50 years ago, which is true. But if we look at this year alone, when we look at the fires that we saw in BC, the heat wave that we saw at the end of June, hundreds of people died in that heat wave. And now here we are dealing with catastrophic rainfall. Do we need to change how we prepare for these things? I would say absolutely. I would say, um, first off, you know, there used to be a, 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 when I started in the business 20, after I got out of the service of the Army 20 years ago, it was, you know, be prepared for three days worth of, of you know, to look after yourself until aid can come. But now I would recommend most families, most people, be prepared for two weeks. Like the amount of time it's going to take for someone to get to you, you know, it was 48 hours for some of these people on the, trapped on the highways. So we as individuals need to be better prepared to last longer on our own with ourselves and our neighbors and our families. And and then governments and municipalities and organizations like Red Cross and Salvation Army all have a role to play in here. But there's no, no more is there a three-day emergency disaster. It's a three-month, maybe in this case, it might be a three-year uh, emergency phase before people can get back in their homes. All right, Steve, thanks for joining us and talking more, uh, given your expertise on this. Thank you so much for your time. My great pleasure. Take care, everybody. Be safe and be kind to people. Well, as mentioned, Canadian Blood Services has had to postpone or cancel donation events that were planned in Chilliwack and Abbotsford. That's because of the heavy rainstorms, the flooding, the mudslides. So what does that mean? Because obviously the need for blood is still there. Let's check in with Gail Voyer, Associate Director of Donor Relations and Collections in the BC Yukon region for Canadian Blood Services. Gail, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you know how many events were cancelled or how many donations didn't go ahead because of the weather? Um, we've had, um, you know, the Chilliwack and Abbotsford events cancelled. Um, we have had the odd day um, cancelled as well um, throughout the province. And so um, there's, there's, a, there's several impacts that are happening and we're just um, keeping safety in mind for, for our donors and for our teams as well um, that are running those events. So what can people do then that aren't in those affected areas and we're st- would still be potentially able to donate blood? Um, you know, we just ask everyone to um, take a look at blood.ca, look for a local donation event um, in their area. Of course, you know, um, if they're not affected by the weather that we've been experiencing. We did um, open up our Surrey um, site um, today that wasn't, you know, scheduled. And we did open that up for donors. So we do have available appointments. That's our site near Guilford. Um, and then we also added some additional appointments at our Oak Street um, donation event at 4750 Oak Street. So for anybody that um, that wants to book an appointment, we just ask you to go to blood.ca or call 1882-DONATE and find a donation centre near you just so we can continue to fill those um, appointments that we have um, lost due to some of these weather impacts. And I'm guessing or understanding as well that because we're still dealing uh, with physical distancing and all of those things, it's, it is still appointment only. It's not something that people can just walk in. 
That's correct. We are asking people to still book those appointments. Um, however, just with given you know sort of this recent uh, recent scenarios that we're experiencing, there are a lot of same day appointments available. So if you um, have the app, the Give Blood app or Blood.ca, it will actually let you know just which which appointments are available, so that um, you can book the same day, or if you know you have time in an hour, that you could book that uh, that upcoming appointment and come see us at one of our donor centers. And is it also is it the need is it heightened because of the weather event, or this is the the general need? This is what is needed from day to day as far as blood donation goes. Um, the need the need is constant, and so we you know when we do have an impacted donation event when we have to cancel um, those donation appointments um, are set to meet the needs of hospitals. The benefit um, of us having a national system is we can still meet the needs of those hospital patients, but we do need to fill all of those remaining appointments um, today and in weeks to come to continue to meet that need um, in right here in BC. And are there specific types of blood that are more desirable than others? Um, the one blood type that we typically will call out for is our O negative donors because they are the universal donor. So in an emergency situation when someone, when we don't know someone's blood type or, you know, when they're being treated, the O negative blood type would be the type that is used um, if they don't have time to test a person's blood. So O negative donors, um, you know, those that are eligible and those that are available, we would ask that they do book those appointments. All right. And as far as the hours go, uh, I got an email from somebody saying they would love to be able to, but they work very long days, often don't get off work till 5 p.m. or later than 5. Are there extended hours or how late can people donate blood? Um, you know, it varies from centre to centre, but to give you an example, um, at Surrey, Surrey today, we're open till after 7 o'clock. Um, and then we are, we do have donation centres that are open past 5 o'clock. Um, the best thing I could suggest is, depending on where this um, potential donor was located, if they go to blood.ca, type in the community that they're in, um, it will bring up the most, um, the the donation centers that are closest to their proximity and they will see a variety of hours and hopefully one of those can meet their needs and uh, they could book an appointment. All right. And do you find uh, when things like this happen, I mean, on the plus side, we've not seen mass mass casualties from this, even though we now know that uh, the lower mainland is cut off basically with all of the roads washed out and such. Uh, We are still waiting to see what's happening with Pemberton, where we have some vehicles that are unaccounted for. But when we have a catastrophic event like this, but even when there's not mass mass casualties, does it prompt people or do you see a bit of a surge in people looking for ways to help? and coming out and giving blood is one of those ways? Yeah, we do. We actually, um, a lot of times people will, you know, people do want to help, just like you've said, and this is one way that they can help. Um, you know, maybe not directly related to kind of what's happening, but people do, um, I think just their general spirit is in the spirit of giving and blood donation is one of those ways that they feel like they can be helping kind of their fellow community members um, in the area in just um, some, some, you know, some form of form of um, support um, that they can give and, and blood donation is a great way to do that, um, you know, despite what's happening um, any time of year, but we do see an, an increase in support when things like this are occurring. And what should people keep in mind as far as what makes you ineligible to give blood? Um, you know what, um, things like, um, you know, I guess we're not doing a lot of this right now, but travel, um, some some medications can um, deter you from donating, but there are a lot that are acceptable. Um, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is, um, you know, go to blood.ca, take our eligibility quiz, 
Um, just make sure that you're generally feeling well. I think we're experiencing that just with the COVID protocols in place. People are mindful of that. Um, but just making sure that they're feeling well, making sure that they've had something to eat before they come in and to donate and making sure that they're well hydrated. Um, and if they can get online to take that eligibility quiz at blood.ca in advance, that will just help um, kind of mitigate some of those questions um, that could defer them from donating for sure. All right. We will leave it there for this afternoon. Gail, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And thanks for having us and uh, thanks for uh, helping to spread the word. Well, let's find out what is happening as far as restoring power to the thousands of hydro customers in this province that lost power during the height of the windstorm and the rains. Kevin Aquino joins us now, a BC Hydro spokesperson. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. At the height of the storm and the high winds, do you know how many customers were without power? Yeah, so I can tell you that during uh, the afternoon peak yesterday, we saw about 126,000 customers without power, but the hardest hit areas being in Victoria, Surrey, Seashelt, and Hope. I would like to note that our crews have made significant progress over the course of the storm, and we have restored power to more than 219,000 customers throughout the province in the last 48 hours. And are there still some areas then that uh, the hardest hit or they're difficult to reach and that's becoming uh, more of a challenge? Yeah, what I can tell you is that the um, majority of customers left without power by Monday's windstorm will have their power restored today. Um, currently, um, if we're looking at the outage map, there are about 2,000 customers in Coquitlam and Port Coquitlam without power. We have about 1,400 customers in North Vancouver without power and about 2,000 customers in West Kelowna without power as the storm did move to the southern interior. Uh, so at this point, if somebody is still without power, can they make the assumption that Hydro knows about it? Of course. So we do have all hands on deck. I would like to note that we do have a team of in-house meteorologists that have been tracking this weather system quite closely. So we did know where the storm was going to materialize and where we could send our crews. Um, what I can tell you is that we did bring in some additional crews from different regions. So that definitely helped out with our restoration efforts. Uh, because that would be a challenge as well. I would imagine if you don't already have crews in place with so many of the roads closed and still flooded, is there an issue as far as hydro crews being able to access the areas they need to be? Yeah, what I can tell you is that we were in um, we were encountering some access issues due to the torrential rain and mudslide. Now that the weather is working in our favor, the majority of customers um, will be um, brought back on later this afternoon. And what about things when we're talking about flooding, does it make it more challenging as well? I know uh, there was an individual who spoke with Global News earlier today. He was able to go back to his house, but the freezer is ruined. The, The power was out. Does it make it more challenging or is it different when we're talking about places that are still partially submerged and bringing power back to them? Yeah, of course. So the heavy rainfall did result in significantly higher inflows into local rivers. And what we did do is that we issued flood alerts um, on Monday um, related to the operation of some of our reservoirs. I would like to note that all flood alerts, with the exception of Alouette, has been cancelled as of Tuesday morning. And we're continuing to work um, and manage water levels carefully and work with provincial and local agencies. And when you say with the exception of Alouette, so are there still issues there? And that's Alouette near Maple Ridge, still issues there with flooding or with anticipated the anticipation of perhaps more flooding? Yeah, so with Alouette, um, we do still have a flood alert. Um, the reason being is that uh, we are seeing higher um, than normal uh, inflows into the local rivers. So we are managing that and monitoring it quite closely.
And with the cleanup then, is hydro part of that? I know obviously the, the main focus is to get the power back on and to get people reconnected. But what else, what other role or does hydro play any other role as far as the cleanup and that? Yeah, so in terms of restoration, um, our, especially during a storm um, event, our crews can be doing anything from taking a branch off a line, racing, restringing wire, or conducting a full-on power, power pole replacement. And the power pole replacements take about a few hours, so that's why sometimes uh, restoration efforts may take a bit longer than expected. Um, we are in the business of vegetation management, and vegetation management, um, as it relates to PC Hydro, is that we ensure that vegetation doesn't come near or close to power lines lines um, because there is a risk that um, in a stormy and windy event, uh, vegetation can come uh, into contact with our power lines causing power outages. Right. And is there anything else that Hydro does when we look at the the entire city of Merritt that was told to evacuate, the water system was out, they didn't have drinking water or a sewer system. Does Hydro play a role in that or is it only then at that point if the power goes out as well? So we are in the business of restoring power. Um, we do work very closely with EMBC to ensure that the areas are safe, um, primarily with electrical infrastructure um, and storm events like this. If you do come across a downline, um, we always encourage our customers to always assume that it's live, even if it's not sparking, smoking, or making a buzzing sound. Uh, we encourage customers to stay at least 10 meters back, and that's about the length of a bus, and call 911. A downline is considered an emergency, and our crews will work with emergency responders and um, different provincial and local agencies to ensure that the area is safe. All right. And as far as the um, the meteorologists, and I know we've talked to Hydro uh, about this in the past, but it always seems like uh, the system at BC Hydro, when you talk about your crews being in place, it always does seem like they're a bit of a step ahead or they're better in a better position to respond than others in the province. Uh, what I can tell you is that we take every storm as a learning experience, no matter how big or small. And after every storm, we take a step back and take a look at how we did with the storm response and our procedures. And from there, we assess anything we can do better. And we look at things like on how we could have pre-deployed crews and resources differently or more efficiently. All right, Kevin, thank you so much. I know it's been a, a very busy few days for you as well, but thank you so much for joining us with this update. No, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Well, coming up, we'll have some more of the questions and answers from today's COVID-19 news conference. Right now, though, we want to go back to covering the aftermath of those mudslides in B.C. Still, several major highways cut off, not passable at this point, and many others still underwater. Let's check in with Sarah Graham, who is currently at the Hope Secondary, part of the group that got stuck there, stranded after the landslide. And Sarah is on the line with us now. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. How are things going right now? Things are going really well. Um, The high school uh, crew is cleaning up right now. We just found out that we're actually getting a delivery of cots and blankets, which will be super helpful because we only had donations last night and there was enough to go around, but it was pretty tough. Uh, We did sleep on some hard concrete floors. So we're super happy to be inside soon. And the crew's also doing a cleanup and doing all the high touch points for COVID um, just to make sure that everybody's safe and that everything's nice and sanitary. All right. Uh, Take us back a little bit uh, for people that maybe haven't been following along. Where were you headed at the point at the time when this all started to unfold? 
Yeah, so we were coming down from the shoe swap, and we found out in the morning that the um, Coquihalla had an accident, or that the road had collapsed. From there, we went down the number one, um, and then that ended up getting closed off. And then we started going down the crow's nest through Merritt, and we got to the number one, and just as we came across the highway, um, I was talking to my brother, and he said that we couldn't go any further, that they were going to close off the number seven um, in through the back of Agassiz. So from there, uh, we pretty much were stranded. The road behind us on the crow's nest uh, had washed out. We were probably within the last half an hour of cars before um, before the road was gone. Hmm. And is it a road that you've driven many times before? Yeah, my brother-in-law was driving it. He's got a um, Toyota Highlander and he has snow tires. So we were kind of watching the forecast. We knew there could be snow. So we were prepared for winter driving, but definitely not all the roads washing out around us. No. What was that like? Because I think many people who, if you've driven the road before, you, like you said, you're prepared for winter, even when it's, it seems unseasonable. You're prepared for if one route closes, maybe you take a detour, it takes a few hours longer. But it's it's very rare that everything becomes not not passable. What was that like? Yeah, so we were definitely driving a lot longer. We did have to take a big detour route. Um and then really the worst was that there started to be debris on the road. It was raining super heavy. And then at that tail end on the crow's nest, when we started crossing over the water that was coming over the road, it was super fast moving and we we're watching the cars in front of us do it. So that kind of gave us a little bit more security. Um, but when we hit it, luckily we were just able to stay straight and get through it. But I just knew that there was going to be no going back that way, that it, was, it wasn't going to last. That road was going to blow out. Wow, you must have been thankful as well then that you had the vehicle or you were in the vehicle that you were in and not something smaller. Yeah, and I mean, we heard about those who got trapped between the landslides on uh, number seven, the low heat, and I just like kept thinking about how scary that would be. Like it was cold, it was raining, and they were there for hours. So, I mean, we got so fortunate. Um, any of the first responders that were like helping people when, when we heard that search and rescue was going to come in and helicopter people out, like... I think it kind of gave everybody up in hope, like that, you know, sense of um, community that we had it so good. Like we, we all are here. We're all okay. Um, we're being well taken care of. It's warm. It's clean. There's food. So it, it, it just, we're so fortunate. Right. So how did that unfold then that, that you got to that point where you knew that the roads were all washed out? How did you then figure out or know that you could go to Hope and go to the secondary school? Well, we didn't really have a lot of choice. We just kind of drove into Hope. All the main drags were littered with cars with people inside of them. And it was like it was just downpour rain for, for the whole night. Um, we The power was out. And then at about 2 a.m., we were very uncomfortable being four adults and a dog in a, in a five-seater situation with storage in the back. Um, but we, we found out that the church was open via text message from one of my family members and we went and we slept on the church pews and then further into the early hours of the morning, it was like closer to four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. We heard that the school was going to open up. So we came over to the school and the school had a generator going. So the lights were on. 
Um, and from there, um, the power has come back on and hope uh, the internet service on cell phones has been really, um, really unavailable. So you can get a- occasionally an update through a web page, but at, like Facebook was just showing old news um, pretty much. So we didn't actually see a lot of the aftermath photos from what was going on. And it felt very isolating. Like we were kind of in our own little bubble world and we were just hearing kind of word of mouth from everyone in the school too, like what everyone knew. So depending on who you were sitting next to and who was getting phone calls, that that's about the extent of how we would figure it out. Hmm. And, and you said, so on the, the plus side, you've now learned they're bringing in some cots and blankets so for people. How many people are you with at the high school? Um, geez, it's, it's really hard to know. I haven't asked anybody, but I'd say it's, it's a few hundred. Um, there is still people kind of around. I think they're still like having people come in. Um, it's been crazy to see the amount of people coming in with donations and the community of hope is really pulled together to bring groceries. Um, I've seen baby items, diapers, onesies. Uh, they've brought in dog food cause there are a lot of dogs here. There's some bunny rabbits and some guinea pigs too, but it seems like everybody like just kind of pulled through and, and started taking care of us. That's uh, the good to hear. Uh, and I guess the question being then, have you been given any idea on how long you're going to be there? Not yet. It's positive that it stopped raining up here, but um, we had a police officer, RCMP, go over the PA system and tell us um, that as soon as he is able to get us out, it sounds like we're going to have an escort down the highway. So they're probably looking for some kind of route so the we can evacuate down lower. But for myself and um, some of my family members, I'm just not sure if we can get down as far as Chilliwack, then where do we go from there? Or if that's, you know, where, where we just have to kind of follow the flow. <laughs> right. So because where is home for you? I'm in Mission. Right. So the idea you kind of want to get to get as far as close to or or get back to home as soon as possible. Yeah, it's just now that we're we're safe, we're warm, we're comfortable. It's like the unknown, I think, is the scary part. So hopefully um, wherever we end up in the next like day or two or however far along we need from there to to have the road crews do their thing on the roads. Um, then we'll just, we'll kind of just, yeah, go with the flow. I guess that's all we can do. Yeah. And I mean, you, you sound so, so, um, calm about it, which is great, but I would imagine there are a lot of people that are missing work or trying to, to do things remotely and uh, obviously didn't anticipate spending this much time in hope. Yeah. Well, I mean, no one could have predicted that this was going to happen quite like it did, um, I mean, as for work, safety and health, it has to come first. And anybody that doesn't have to be on the roads, if it's not safe, then don't do it. And I don't think that anybody that doesn't have that immediate need for health and safety should be out on these highways. Like, it was really scary. Yeah, the way you described it, too. I mean, we tend to think of, we've seen that footage of those aerial photos of the road, and you think of that, but not really what, what that must have been like with the visibility. My guess is when you were in the thick of it, you probably couldn't see anything. It was it was very poor visibility in a couple stretches, but Tom, thankfully, he's, he's, a, he's a great driver, so he took good care of us and got us safely to hope. Um, there was like stories that I was hearing of people going, um, off the road, like the landslide kind of did take some cars out and there was some extreme rescues going on. So I think it's easy to look at photos and think, oh, well, you know, they could do this. They could do that. Like, this is a major incident. And I don't think these highways are going to be like the highways that we know for quite some time. 
Um, and I'm seeing that people post things online and, and they're kind of asking like, well, when can I go through? I, I don't know that that's a question that will be answered very quickly. No. And when you were, when that happened, were you seeing people, did people just pull over and, and kind of try and wait out the storm or did you see any of that? Yeah, there was some people around Allison's path, which made me super nervous for them just because it didn't feel safe where they did pull off. But I didn't know um, at that point that we were going into an area that was like pretty water laden. Um, I hope that those people all got back in their cars and were able to either turn around and go back up to safety because they were pretty close to where the big, big water um, areas were that were coming across the road. All right. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us and glad to hear that it's going to be a bit more comfortable with with cots and blankets. And I know there's food there as well and the power back on. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, if you don't mind, Jill, can I just say thank you to all the first responders, um, anybody in the City of Hope that has pulled together, everybody that's working at essential services right now. it's it's been fabulous like it really is humbling because i'm not somebody that likes to accept this kind of help and i I would love to be more helpful but being the one that's that's stranded like it's amazing so thank you to all those that have been supporting us because we we really appreciate it yeah well thank you for for doing that and i know so many people are are so thankful exactly for that so uh stay calm out there and sarah maybe we'll talk to you again but thanks again so much for joining us Yeah, thank you for having me.